Well, good morning again. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. If you'd like to use one of the church Bibles in the pew in front of you, you'll find our reading on page 981. Philippians chapter 3, where we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. A text that really gets to the heart of a question that was asked by Job thousands and thousands of years ago. How can a man, or a woman just as important, be in the right before God? Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning acknowledging that we, if we are in Christ, are both sinful and yet justified. And it's our prayer this morning that you would remind each and every one of us, maybe even teach some of us for the very first time, that if we have any hope to stand before you, it will have to be on the basis of someone else. And so we pray that as your word rings out, a word that is said to be sharper than any two-edged sword, 
We pray that that would pierce our hard and stony and legalistic hearts and awaken us afresh and anew to the realities of grace in the person of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Frederick Bourdain is a man who is known by many names, as many as 500 names. Perhaps the most famous name that Mr. Bourdain is known by is the Chameleon, because he's made a career out of being what's known as a serial imposter. Back in 1994, a family in Texas, the Barclay family, had their son, who was 13 at the time, disappear after having gone to play basketball with his friends. In 1997, three years later, they get a call that tells them that their son has been found in Italy. They fly to Italy to pick up what ostensibly is their son, but is really Frederick Bourdain. And even though Bourdain had brown eyes where Nicholas had blue, even though Bourdain had dark hair where Nicholas was blonde, even though Bourdain spoke with a French accent where Nicholas had none, somehow he successfully fooled this family into thinking he was their relative. And only after living with them for five months was he found out and arrested, did six years in jail, only to get out and do the exact same thing to two or three other families. Now, when you hear that story, the first instinct, I think, for many of us is to say, how in the world could somebody do that to a grieving family? But then on the other hand, the other question that should be raised by all of us is, how in the world do these families not know that he's an imposter? What about the church? We've been talking about partnership in the gospel throughout the letter of Philippians. And all throughout, Paul has been putting forward these worthy examples of gospel partnership. First of all, none other than Jesus himself, who sets aside his own interests to save his people. He follows that then with Timothy and Epaphroditus, men that are worthy of our imitation. And here now, in chapter 3, Paul says, but wait a moment. There are those who will pretend to be partners in the gospel, but who in all reality are bad actors. He refers to them later in chapter 3 as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so Paul's burden here in chapter 3 of Philippians is to say family of God, don't be fooled by pseudo-relatives. Do not be fooled by imposters. He tells us, in a word, to reject the rubbish righteousness of works by joyfully clinging to the righteousness we have in Christ. Now, if you're looking at the passage in front of you, the structure again will be fairly straightforward. In verses 1 to 3, Paul lays this charge, this warning in front of us. Look out. Be on guard. 
And then in verses 4 through 11, Paul brings himself forward as really exhibit A of why works righteousness just doesn't work. And so he tells us in verses 1 to 3 to joyfully look out for legalistic preachers. Be on guard. And then in verses 4 through 11, he tells us to joyfully consider all things loss compared to knowing Christ. There are bad actors. Reject rubbish righteousness. So first of all, joyfully look out for legalistic preachers. Verses 1 to 3. Look at the text again with me. He says, finally, or so then, a better translation, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now it's strange, isn't it, that Paul goes from rejoice in the Lord to these scathing words about false teachers. What's the connection? Well, Matthew Henry, who is a Baptist Puritan, once said that the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies. The idea for Paul is that just as a woman who rejoices in her husband will never be unfaithful to him, so too will people who rejoice in the Lord Jesus and what he has accomplished on their behalf not wander far from faithfulness to him and the gospel in his name in order to erect their own righteousness. Just one of the safeguards against legalism for you is to rejoice in the Lord. But all the while, as you're rejoicing, Paul says, look out. Loved ones, we should be very very skeptical of any minister of the gospel who's afraid of the words, look out. One of the jobs of the pastor teacher is not only to instruct in what's true, but warn against what's false. And so Paul does just that. Look out. Beware. Now, I want you to notice the way that Paul lays into these legalistic false teachers. Because what Paul does here is he turns all of their sort of criticisms against Gentiles, he turns them back against them. Here's a group of men who, as Autumn read for us, have been dogging Paul his entire ministry career, saying things like Acts 15.1, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. So in their scheme, simple faith in Jesus is not enough. Grace doesn't cut it. The problem with that thinking is that as soon as you add anything to Jesus, you lose everything. So Paul says, look out. Look out for the dogs. Now, in the neighborhood that Kelly and I lived in before we moved here, there are a lot of signs that said, beware of the dog. But Paul isn't thinking about sort of this, you know, ferocious, angry dog ready to bite you. What Paul is talking about here is far more along the lines of what I witnessed in Omaltepec in Mexico. 
There in the mountains, there are these scavenger dogs. They're not owned by anybody. They have no home. Nobody feeds them. And so they go around from home to home looking for scraps. People cook outside, so they try to jump up on tables. Children throw stones at them. They're dirty. They're dingy. They're unclean. To the Jewish mind, an uncircumcised Gentile is that kind of dog. Dirty unclean, outside of the covenant. But Paul says, wait a minute. If anybody comes to you and tells you that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved, I want you to know that they're the dogs. They're unclean. They're outside. Look out. Look out not only for the dogs, but he says look out for the evildoers. Now, brothers and sisters, this is going to be radical for some of us, but we have to understand this. Here's a group of people who are enforcing good works as a means to being right with God, of earning God's favor. Paul calls them not doers of good deeds, but evildoers. Do you know what that means? That means any time that you or I try to offer up to the Lord our good works as a means to earn his favor, we're actually doing evil. To try and be made right with God apart from grace is sin. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Those religious conservatives who want you to do, do, do in order to earn God's favor. Look out for those, he calls the mutilators of the flesh. Those who mutilate the flesh. Back in 1 Kings, the prophets of Baal, this false god, they start to mutilate themselves in worship. Paul says they don't want to just circumcise you. They want to mutilate your flesh. It's as if they are worshiping a pagan false god. Look out. Why? He says, verse 3, that we are to look out or be on guard for those who would bolster up or, or put forward good works as a means to be right with God because we are the circumcision. There's only one circumcision. Now some of you, are sitting in the pew and you're going, I, I don't know what circumcision is. Well, here's the good news. I'm going to tell, I'm going to spell it out for you right now. I'm going to be as just direct and explicit as I possibly can about circumcision. You ready? Circumcision has nothing to do with external rites done to the body. None. Circumcision has everything to do, per Paul, by what God himself works in the heart of a believing man or woman. He says, we are the circumcision who worship or serve by the Spirit of God. To be circumcised, according to Paul, is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. How do I know that I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Next, he says, who glory in Christ Jesus. If you want proof this morning that the Holy Spirit lives within you, ask yourself, what is my boast before God? 
one of the primary, if not the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus. We get it twisted all the time. Where, where Jesus is nowhere to be found, neither is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like a floodlight, J.I. Packer says, that points to Christ. So having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, my glory, my boast, my confidence before the Lord is Christ himself. And if that's not clear enough, Paul goes on to say, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Not only in circumcision, but no confidence in human achievement divorced from grace as something that I'm going to offer up before Almighty God so that He'll be pleased with me. Paul says, watch out. Luther famously said that the default mode of the human heart is legalism. Even for those who have been following Jesus for some time, we, we find ourselves constantly being pulled back, hypnotized into thinking that somehow or another, if God will be pleased with me, it will be on the basis of my own performance. Look out. But then Paul turns and talks about himself. He puts himself forward as exhibit A, and he says, joyfully consider all things lost compared to knowing Christ. That's verses 4 through 11. For those of us here this morning who feel like somehow or another we're, we're good people, God should be pleased with us. We make our best effort. This all sounds really nice to those who are sinful and understand that they're sinful. What about me? I'm a good person. What does Paul have to say to me? You know what Paul has to say to you? He's out of his mind to talk this way. I'm sure he felt that way. He says, pure and simple, I'm better than you. What Paul does here is he goes, okay, let's assume for a moment that God accepts those who are good. I will beat you at your own game every single time. And so he brings his religious resume forward. And he says, consider this. Consider who I am. Paul, he says, verse 4, the one who has more reason for confidence in the flesh than anyone else. Circumcised, there's your issue. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I've got the covenant with Abraham written all over my body. Done on the first day it should have been done. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Here's a quick reminder. I was born into this. I've got a family heritage. Not only am I an Israelite, but he goes on to say, I am from the tribe of Benjamin. Many of us won't know this, but Benjamin was one of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that remained faithful to the Davidic king when the kingdom split. So he goes, not only am I from Israel, I'm cream of the crop. I'm one of the two top-tier tribesmen of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Religiously speaking, I'm a man's man. Religion is my middle name. 
Every Jewish mother wants me to marry their daughter. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? As to the law of Pharisee, the strictest, most rigorous sect of Judaism there is. You can't touch my attention to detail when it comes to the Mosaic law. As to zeal, I was so into Judaism, I persecuted the church. So that when people are stoning Stephen for preaching Jesus, I said, brother, let me hold your robe. Zealous. As to righteousness, he says, under the law, blameless. He says, who among you has any charge to lay at my feet in regards to the Mosaic law? There's not a sin that I've committed that hasn't been covered by sacrifice. I'm blameless. I'm better than you. But I've come to realize that not a lick of that, not one ounce of that, means anything before the judgment seat of Christ. Not any of it. Now I'm willing to bet that most of us here this morning aren't trying to sort of rest on our Jewish laurels in order to be made right with the Lord. But if you think for a moment that this sort of mentality is foreign to us, we're more dangerous than we thought. All of us, at some point or another, even subconsciously, bring forth before the Lord our religious resume and say, God must be pleased with me. Maybe your story is a little bit different than Paul's. Maybe your resume goes like this. Baptized in the eighth year of the people of the evangelicals, of the tribe of Converge, a Baptist of Baptists. As to the traditions of the church, a purist. As to zeal, attending Wednesday night prayer meeting. As to external holiness, blameless. Are you really prepared to offer that resume before the judgment seat of Christ. Friends, I warn you that if that is your plan, you are in desperate trouble. Some of us here this morning are not lost in our sin. We are lost in our religion. Look at the way that Paul accounts all of his heritage, all of his privilege, all of his accomplishments. Verse 7, this is who I am, but whatever gain I had, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I can remember sitting in a room in Firestone Park in Akron, 
alone in my bedroom with a Bible, while my friends in the family room were partying like every other night. And I remember the gospel clicking. And I remember actively thinking, I'm going to lose all that. But I just gained Jesus. Have you had that moment? Where you are willing not only to lose everything for Christ's sake, but to account whatever has been yours by way of pride and privilege and identity as rubbish. I love that word. Reminds me of some of my mentors. Little British word, rubbish. But do you know what Paul's saying here? Rubbish doesn't cut it. This was fun to watch the, the signers kind of interpret because he's really calling it excrement. It's scubalon, he says. It's, it's, it's human feces. Compared to knowing Jesus, everything else that I've gained is rubbish. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, it's crass. But who have you ever met who mourns their loss when they flush the toilet? It's ridiculous. Paul says, I count everything compared to Jesus as rubbish. Because more than anything else, my heart's desire, my life's worth, my life's purpose is to be found in him, to gain him. And he defines that, if you'll look down, as not having a righteousness of my own. If I'm going to stand before the Lord, I need somebody else's righteousness. I can't appear before the judgment seat of the Lord by myself on my own good deeds, as good as they are. I need a righteousness that comes from God and depends on faith. Now that word righteousness, it's in the same word group as justification. Guys, there are some people who think that theology is boring. Let me tell you how boring theology is. Let's just consider this for a moment. Do you understand what happens to you when God makes you righteous? Here I stand with all of my sin and all of my shame, unworthy before the God of the universe. And over here stands Jesus, perfectly righteous, never sinning. When I am justified, we trade places. So now all of Jesus' perfect righteousness, his spotlessness, is credited to my account. And all of my sin and shame and rebellion and unworthiness is credited to his. And so he pours out his blood as a payment for my sin and rises again so that when God looks at me in Christ, he declares righteous, not guilty acceptable you try and tell me theology's boring there's no hope without it paul says i want a righteousness that is not my own but a righteousness that i lay hold of by faith that depends on faith he goes on verse 10 i want to know jesus and the power of his resurrection. 
the kind of resurrection power that calls sinful men and women righteous. The kind of resurrection power that makes you or me increasingly more like Jesus in practice as he works within us. That's what Paul wants to know. He's willing to leave it all behind in order to know Christ. And what's so amazing about this work of Jesus in this former Pharisee and legalist heart is that he's willing to know Jesus by any means necessary. Look, it was cushy over here in this category where I persecuted the church, where I uh, caused other believers to suffer for the name of Jesus. It's difficult to be now over here and on the receiving end of persecution and suffering. But do you see what Paul says? My desire to know Jesus is so strong, I'm willing to suffer for his sake. So that by any means necessary, I might attain to the resurrection. There's a, an athlete that I've just been absolutely mesmerized by, by the name of David Goggins. Goggins is known to be by many the toughest man in the world. At one point he was 300 pounds. He wanted to run an ultra-endurance race. They told him he had to run 100 miles in 17 hours to qualify, and he did it without any training. Broken feet, stress fractures, all sorts of mess. But his testimony is, to become the person I wanted to be, I had to suffer. Why would we think for a moment that if our desire is to be like Jesus, that we wouldn't need to suffer in order to do that. God brings his children through suffering so they'd be more like Christ. We follow a Lord and Savior who is referred to by the prophet as a man of sorrows. See, when you come to the place where you recognize, man, all my former achievements, all my religious resume is as nothing before the Lord, and I will only be accepted freely by grace in Christ. That's the kind of hard attitude you'll have. Lord, whatever it takes. John Newton, my absolute hero. Probably the first person I'll hug in heaven, second after Jesus. He always would say, nobody in heaven is complaining about the path they had to walk to get there. So Paul says, hey, listen, I got to suffer, I got to suffer. But when I reach my final day, he will not leave me in the grave. He'll call my name. He will bring me home. The Lord, the Lord is my salvation. Where's your confidence used to always ask people membership interviews at, at Parkside if God were to ask you at the gates of heaven or if Jesus returned right now and he looked at you and he said why should I accept you what would you say my fear the fear that keeps me up at night is that some of us begin our answer with, because I. When all the while, the 
the right answer is because Christ. Will you reject the rubbish righteousness of your own performance and trust solely and simply in Jesus? Last quote, and then we're done. J. Gresham Machen, professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, got kicked out of Princeton Seminary when the place went completely sideways. One of his friends asked him when he was on his deathbed, how are you doing? Machen, having been on the faculty of two leading seminaries, being one of the men responsible for reinstalling orthodoxy in the American church, a man with a tremendous religious resume, wrote back to his friend, so thankful for the active obedience of Jesus, his righteousness. No hope without it. You can sleep really well tonight if you're not trusting in your own righteousness, if you're depending on yourself, you're always going to be asking, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? And I tell you warmly and kindly in Christ, you're not. But Jesus always is. Let's pray. Father, it's so refreshing for us to be reminded of this good news, this gospel, that having trusted in Jesus, you clothe us with a righteousness that is not ours, was earned by Jesus, given freely by Jesus, and all the glory goes back to Jesus. Father, we pray that each and every one of us here this morning would absolutely refuse to try and present our own performance and achievements to you. But that instead, we would say, behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. Father, this is stranger and far better than fiction that you, Almighty God, would accept sinful people like us on the strength of all that Jesus has accomplished. What else would we do but lift his name higher and higher still. The Lord is our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we stand for our closing doxology from John's revelation. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
go in his grace.